Lord, may your name be blessed by your people, for you are worthy of our praise, Lord. Thank you for your grace and mercy poured out through the, the cross, through your son, Jesus. We thank you that by his blood, our sins, which left our hands uh, stained and uh, scarlet, Lord, our, sin, our sins have been washed white as snow. Thank you that we've been purified, O oh God, through the blood of Jesus Christ. We celebrate that, Lord, and even now as we head toward the table that you've invited us to in communion, we pray, Father, that you would uh, guide and direct our hearts. We love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Grab your Bibles and turn to the book of James, chapter 4. You can also find Matthew, chapter 6. James 4 and Matthew 6. Good to be back in the book of James. Uh, I enjoyed our time that we took in, uh, in the month of August looking at the things that makes Calvary Chapel distinct, and by no means did we cover them all, but uh, uh, I think we gave everybody a good taste. If you have specific questions about who we are and, and what we stand for as a church, I'd be happy to answer those at any point. You're welcome to ask, but uh, one of the things that Calvary Chapel is known for from the beginning is that we teach the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We cover the whole Word of God. And it is uh, eventual that if you sit with us for long enough, you will have the entire Bible taught to you. Uh, it took Pastor Dave, I think, 11 years the first time he went through it. So it's not a short process by any means. And I will tell you this also, that when we say that, that includes you coming on a Wednesday night service. Uh, it's not that I'm going to teach all of the Bible on Sunday morning. And so, uh, in order to get the whole picture, it's beneficial for you to come on Wednesday night. And so, we would encourage you to do that. Now, it may be that I'll eventually get to everything on Sunday morning, but you're looking at about 40 years. So, you got 40 years left? <laughs> I don't know if I have 40 years left. We don't know if tomorrow. God is good. So, we're back in the book of James, and I, it's one of my favorite books of all time, like uh, the drummer in my heavy metal band that we used to, I used to play in years ago, it was his favorite book, he said, because it punches you in the face. And, uh, and James certainly does do that, and tonight or this morning will be no different if you allow it. Uh, if we're open to the Spirit moving in our heart, I believe the word that he has for us today can radically change our lives for Jesus Christ. And so I encourage you to open your hearts even now to what God would have to say. So when we left off back at the end of July, we almost finished chapter 4, left one line out. And so I wanted to cover that this morning and then continue on into chapter 5. But it's verse 17 that we did not get to. Uh, and verse 17 of James chapter 4 says this, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him... It is sin. Now, after a month off, we can't very well start a teaching with the word therefore. <laughs> What's it therefore, <laughs> right? What's, what, why is the therefore there? Uh, what, is, what is going on? And so intentionally, I wanted to start that way so that I could build in some review of what some of the things that we've been covering. James, the book of James, is written by Strange enough, a guy named James. And James wrote this book. James, we need to understand, is the half-brother of Jesus, same father, or same mother, different fathers. Jesus, of course, the Holy Spirit. 
conceived, and James through Joseph. James, the half-brother of Jesus, all the while Jesus was living on the earth, thought that Jesus was crazy. Looked at what he was doing and said, that dude is flipped. And we need to, he's embarrassing himself, he's embarrassing our family, we need to bring him in and haul him in. And they actually said at one point, let's go get him, and, and let's, let's take care of this in-house. James thought he was crazy until Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, that pretty much settles it in my mind too. You know, if somebody should suddenly be back after three days of being gone, I'm, I'm down with that. Uh, whatever you have to say, sir, I'd be happy to listen to you, even if you are my half-brother. So now James is living his life on the mission of God, and that's one of the distinctives we talked about uh, at the beginning of August, that the mission of God is seeking and saving the lost. James jumps on board with that and is now living his life, fulfilling the mission of God. Most people would say that James was given charge of the church in Jerusalem as the church began to spread, as it was promised in Acts chapter 1, to Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth. As Paul was taking the gospel throughout all of Asia and parts of Europe, we see that James sits at home. He stays where the church started. He sits in Jerusalem, and he actually became what we would call the pastor of that church. And so this is a pastor writing a very practical book about living out your Christian faith. And that's why it's so pertinent for you and I today. This, this book, this five-chapter book, teaches us how to live. In chapter one, we saw that trials are a good thing. Hmm, that's different than what I would believe normally. That's different than what the world would teach me. But that's what James chapter one teaches us, that trials are a good thing because they draw us closer to him. They conform us to Jesus' image. In chapter two, we saw that faith without works is dead. You can say you're a Christian all day long, but if your life doesn't line up with that, your faith is dead. Sorry to say it, but just saying that you're a Christian doesn't cut it. You know, just like we've said before, standing at McDonald's doesn't make you a cheeseburger. You know, it's, it's the idea that we can't just simply say we're a Christian. Matthew chapter 3 verse 8 would say, hey, we need to have fruit that bears with our repentance, that we say we've repented, but do our lives show it? Faith without works is dead. Chapter 3, the key, if I were to sum it up in three words, would be watch your mouth. <laughs> that not only do the things that we do need to line up with the fact that we say that we have faith, but the things that we say, the way we treat one another. Are we walking in love with one another? Are we caring for one another? You can't speak out of both sides of your mouth. The idea, you can't, a, a, a spring can't produce both salt water and fresh water, and neither can you. So what are you saying? Watch your mouth. And then chapter four, where we left off, the key would be, or the main point would be that humility, that we would walk in humility. Humility is the key thing. And we said that humility is this. That's kind of where we left off. Humility means that we would have a proper perspective of ourself and of God. That we'd have a proper understanding of who we are and who God is. And what we learned through chapter 4 is that we lack power and knowledge. <laughs> now, we would think much more differently of ourselves in our natural state, and in fact, the world would tell us differently. But the truth of the matter is we lack both power and knowledge. And we learned of God that He is all-powerful and all-knowing. 
And so if that is the case, and we believe that to be the case, as the Word teaches us, doesn't it make sense that we would submit to His authority? If we don't have power, if we don't have knowledge, and He has all the power, and He has all the knowledge, then if we're going to follow Him, it would make sense that our lives would line up with what He has to say. We submit to the authority of the Word of God. So now, our therefore, in verse 17, can make some sense. Read it again. Therefore, because of these things, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. He said earlier in the book, do not, deceive, or do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. It's, it's of no value. You come here Sunday after Sunday and listen to the message and the Word of God go forth, and it doesn't impact your life Monday through Saturday. It is of no value to you. Do not merely listen to the Word and so, de- so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And so we submit to His authority. He's saying the same thing in verse 17. And just so that we understand, there are two ways that you can sin. Okay, There's a whole bunch of ways that you can sin. But they're categorized into two different categories. We have the sins of commission and the sins of omission. Perhaps you've heard this before, perhaps not. But whatever, however we would sin against what God has said is right, it would fall into two types of categories. Either we are committing the sin or it's a sin of omission. Commission, those are the sins that we're probably familiar with. Those are the sins that we would commit. Something that we do that stands against what God would say. Lust. Taking a second look at the jogger, clicking on that website, um, thinking in your mind, that, those things, that's, you're committing acts against God. Arrogance, pride, gluttony, anger, foul mouth, blasphemy. Those are types of sins of commission. Those are the things that you commit against God. What, what James is talking about in verse 17 would be sins of omission. And we need to watch out in our lives and be aware that we can omit things as well. A sin of omission are sins because we omitted doing what was right. If we know what the right thing to do is, and if you've ever known what the right thing to do is, and you didn't do it, you've sinned against God. You're worthy of His wrath. There's a place in hell for you. Even if you never committed a sin where you, you've lusted or you've murdered or you've angered, which is all those things are not true. You have committed those things. If you knew what the right thing to do was and you didn't do it, we're worthy of his wrath. And this is a perfect time for us to pause and to say, okay, well, that's such a cheery message for this Labor Day weekend, but that's the truth of the matter. If you know what the right thing to do was and you didn't do it, you've sinned against God, you're worthy of his wrath, you're in need of being rescued. And that's the beauty of the gospel, is that Jesus recognized that. The Lord recognized that, that, that people were destined for eternity without him. And Jesus set aside his royal robe, put, took off his royal crown, stepped away from the royal throne, and descended, condescended to you and I. He became as a man, Philippians chapter 2. He, he um, emptied himself and became a servant. He lived a sinless life, a spotless life, never once committed a sin, never once omitted anything, and yet died a death that a criminal would die. Bore stripes upon his back, a crown of thorns crushed upon his head. 
lived a, a spotless life and yet was crucified, as Isaiah would say, that by His stripes we might be healed. That we might be forgiven of our sins. He absorbed the wrath of God. The wrath of God was poured out on the Lamb of God on the cross. And He absorbed that wrath that you and I deserve, that whoever would believe in Him, it says in John chapter 3, wouldn't perish, that they would have everlasting life. And so it's an opportunity for you today, if you're in that state where you recognize there's been things that I know that I should have done that I didn't do, and I'm in need of a Savior, Jesus wants to meet you in that place and make today the day of salvation. It's as easy as saying, Lord, I recognize my need for a Savior. Please forgive me of my sins. I want to live my life for you. And if that's you today, I want to know about that. I want to, I want to know that you want to take that step. And I just encourage you to seek me out after the service. And let's talk about that. Today is a day of salvation for somebody in this house. You know the right thing to do. Take the step. So now it gets ugly <laughs> for our flesh. James rightly leaves no stone unturned, and now he's going to hit us where it hurts, our wallets. And if this is your first time in church, please understand we teach chapter by chapter, verse by verse. I don't make it a, an issue of mine to talk about money in any way, shape, or form. I don't like talking about money. We don't, we're not going to pass the plate an extra time today just to make sure everybody understands this message. Not about that. I think one of the greatest measures of how much we love God is how we tend to and care for our money. So James is going to hit us there. So it says in chapter 5, verse 1, Come now, you rich. <laughs> well, that leaves me off the hook, right? That's, that's probably what you thought as well. <laughs> He's not speaking to me. We're not rich. Well, we need to align ourselves with what God's Word would say about who is rich. It's not us for up... It's not, for us to determine whether or not we're rich. So what would the Word of God say about who is rich? How about this? 1 Timothy 6.8. You might want to write this in your margin off to that, next to that word rich in verse 1. 1 Timothy 6.8. You ready? You ready to hear this? And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Having food and clothing... With these, we shall be content. Anything more than food and clothing, you're rich. You have luxury. Anything more than food and clothing, the Bible would say you're rich. You got a home? You're rich. Even if it's a crappy apartment. You got a car? You got cars, you got a TV, you got TVs, you got a computer, a watch, a video game system, Netflix, plumbing, lawnmower, bed, couch, table, cabinets, vacation, more than one pair of shoes, glasses, phones, bo music, books, dogs, dogs aren't food, <laughs> gym memberships, skis, surfboards, tools, electricity, they're all luxury in accordance with the Word of God. You're all rich. We are all 
rich. Even if we in America today were to compare ourselves with the, what the world's standard is, we're rich. You're like, dude, I'm making minimum wage. Yeah, I'm making minimum wage? You're doing really well in comparison with the standard of this world. 50%, three and a half billion people on this planet live on less than $2 a day. You make eight something an hour at minimum wage. An hour. 50% of the world lives on less than $2 a day. If you make $25,000, which is a, a meager salary in this day and age, you are in the top 2% of the world's economy. $25,000 a year. That means there are 6.86 billion people who make less money than you do at $25,000 a year. You're rich. Whether you put it in the world's standard or God's standard, you're rich. So don't dismiss this message when he says, come now, you rich. That means you and me. Let's listen. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Hmm, fun. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Strong language. And probably something that we need to chew on to fully understand. Let it, let it sink into our soul to grab it. But let me just try to sum it up in this way. You and I, we need to take caution that our view of money and our use of money is shaped by the Word of God, not by the system of this world. Remember we talked earlier when we were in the book of James, back in chapter 3, that there's two types of wisdom, and we need to align ourselves with the right type of wisdom. It said in James chapter 3, verse 14, If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. We don't want to align ourselves with that kind of wisdom. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are. So the worldly wisdom about our money would say that our wealth is for our benefit. God would say that is self-seeking and therefore evil. And we are inundated with the world's view on a daily basis. The last 10 years, our consumption of media has doubled. In 2005, between 2000 and 2005, the average media use in the United States was somewhere between five and six hours. In 2014, it's over 10 hours a day that we expose ourselves to media. And that means that 360 times every day, you're seeing an advertisement. And what is an advertisement other than to say, you need this. You're, you're discontent. It's obvious that you're discontent. And so if you just had this, your life would be better. That's 360 times a day that message is, and that only counts the five major media outlets. That doesn't count billboards and bus wraps and taxis and, and things like that. That's just online and TV and radio and, and print and what have you. 
We're inundated with the wisdom of this world, especially when it comes to money. Ads are a call to discontentment. You need this. This will make your life better. You will be cooler if you just had this. You'll be more comfortable. You know, you got to keep up with the Joneses, and the Joneses just bought a boat. And it's our battle to fight against this inundation with the wisdom of God. I've been walking with the Lord long enough, and you start interacting with people, and people like to quote the Bible back to you, even if they're not a Christian, right? What's the, the most common thing you hear as you're interacting and you let people know that you're a Christian? Judge not, lest you be judged. Right? <laughs> but the, probably the second most common one, and they'll say, oh, I know, I know the Bible says money is the root of all evil. And I'll say, really? Where does it say that? Oh, you, you know, it's in the back somewhere. It's, right, it's back there next to um, cleanliness is next to godliness. And, and God helps those who help themselves. You know, that, that's where, it's back there somewhere, in the back. The Word of God does not say that money is the root of all evil. Money is a tool. For, for, what it does say, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. So you know where it is. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money... For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and perceived themselves, or sorry, pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So there is a warning that we need to be cautious with money, but it's not money that's evil. Money's a neutral thing. It's the love of money we need to be careful of. Like I said, money is a tool. It's a neutral thing. It's like fire. Fire can be a good thing. Right? Fire keeps you warm. If you say, yeah, I love, I don't love camping, but I love the part of camping where you get to sit by the fire, roast your marshmallows, and warm your feet. Fire can be a good thing. Fire can also destroy your house. Fire is just a tool. Money is just a tool. So maybe if the love of money will pull us from God, which is what 1 Timothy 6 says, Maybe it's time that we would change our view of money and line our view up with what God has to say about it. Let's see what the Lord would say. So now flip to Matthew chapter 6. This is uh, the Sermon on the Mount, 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Matthew. Jesus' famous sermon, right in the middle of it, we get the second half of Matthew chapter 6, and, and Jesus graciously speaks about what we should do with our money. We're going to pick it up in verse 19, Matthew 6, 19. Jesus now speaking, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Huh. It almost sounds like James as he's writing the book of James, is reading Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. This is very similar to what James is saying back in chapter 5. And then verse 21 of six, Matthew 6, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So let me ask you, where is your treasure today? Because wherever your treasure is, 
wherever those things that you value are, that's where your heart is. That's the plain, simple truth coming from Jesus Himself in the Word of God. Ads, advertisements would suggest that if we increase our treasures here on earth, we will be more joyful, we'll be more at peace, we'll be more comfortable, we'll be more satisfied, and actually, the opposite is true. The more we get, the worse we are. The less comfortable we are, the less peace we have, the less joy we have, because we're worried about our stuff. You guys know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is? Most of you? I I would have loved to, well, I'll get to meet him one day in heaven. Bonhoeffer recognized in the early 40s in Germany that Hitler was going the wrong way. Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran pastor, plots a plan, or makes a plan to kill Hitler. Almost accomplishes it. Gets caught, ends up being um, martyred, killed. So his life story and the way that he served is, is a fascinating one. I've got a couple quotes, good quotes about earthly goods. Listen to this. Bonhoeffer would say, Earthly goods deceive the human heart into believing that they give it security and freedom from worry. But in truth, they are what cause anxiety. The heart which clings to goods receives with them the choking burden of worry. Worry collects treasures, and treasures produce more worries. We desire to secure our lives with earthly goods. We want our worrying to make us worry-free, But the truth is the opposite. The chains which bind us to earthly goods, the clutches which hold the goods tight, are themselves worries. You think about it. You got a junker type car. Are you worried about parking it way out at the end of the parking lot where nobody else is going to be six spaces from you? No. You drive it right up front, you park it sideways, and if somebody runs into you, maybe you'll get some insurance out of it, you know? It's just, <laughs> that's, but you get that new, shiny, pretty car. And that first ding, what happens? <laughs> <laughs> Hulk smash, you know? You get worried. Sorry, my boys have been watching. They've been on a Hulk thing lately. <laughs> How about this from Bonhoeffer? Probably a better perspective on earthly goods. Earthly goods are given to be used, not to be collected. In the wilderness, God gave Israel the manna every day, and they had no need to worry about food and drink. Indeed, if they kept any of the manna over until the next day, it went bad. In the same way, the disciples must receive his portion from God every day. If he stores it up as a permanent possession, He spoils not only the gift, but himself as well. For he sets his heart on accumulated wealth and makes it a barrier between himself and God. Where our treasure is, there is our trust, our security, our consolation, and our God. Hoarding is idolatry. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So he goes on to say, Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, now verse 22, the lamp of the body is the eye. 
If, they're, if you're, therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Think about all the images that we let in through the eye gate of our lives. 360 times a day, we're inundated through, through either our eyes or our ears that you're discontent, and if you only had this, your life would be better. Store up your treasure here on earth. Accumulate the wealth. Life will be more comfortable. And the truth of the matter is, the exact opposite is true. He says in verse 24, and here is the heart of the matter, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. And here it is, you cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon, their word for money. Our love of money takes the throne of our heart. And that's where God belongs. And that's where God belongs. We cannot serve God and ourselves, our accumulated wealth. Therefore, I say to you in verse 25, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you a little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Remember what Timothy, it said in Timothy? With food and clothing, we shall be content. See how that fits into what Jesus is saying here? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. The world seeks after the extra things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And then the famous verse everybody knows, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I don't know if there's a greater litmus test for our Christian faith than our conduct with money. I don't know if there's an, uh, an easier way for us to see how genuine our, our hearts are about our faith than us looking at our checkbook ledger and our investments and the things we do with our money. Your wallet informs you about how generous you are. This is an opportunity for you to look at your life. This isn't a sermon where you're going, man, I wish my brother-in-law was here. He needs to hear this. No, your wallet shows you where you are with God. Your, your bank statement lets you know where your faith is at. I believe that God gives money to us 
so that with it, we might be generous. Go back to James chapter 5 and look at this warning. I want to say that again. I believe that God gives us our money that with it we might be generous. It says in verse 4, look at the warning. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. It doesn't say Sabbath there. That's not a misprint. These are actually two different terms. The Lord of Sabaoth. That's an interesting term of God. That James would pull that one out. The Lord of the Sabaoth. What does that mean? Well, it's actually the same thing we learned of God on Wednesday night as we were studying the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 1, he uses the same term, the Lord of the Sabaoth. It means the Lord of hosts. The message would translate it this way, and I love this title. He is the God of the angel armies. That He is in control of the heavenlies. That He is the supreme being. He is the supreme authority. He is the supreme master. He's got an army behind Him and He's leading it. So now read that word again in verse 4. The cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord who's got the army behind Him. The Lord of hosts. This is a judgment posture by God. God doesn't like it when we do not care for the poor, the widow, and the orphan. In Isaiah chapter 1, God likens the actions of Israel to the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you know what the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah were? And if you were here Wednesday night, don't answer. Do you know what the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah were? Uh, this was eye-opening to me. Everybody thought it was... Um, you know, sodomy and homosexuality. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister, Sodom. She and her daughter, meaning Gomorrah, had pride, fullness of food, an abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. God smote Sodom and Gomorrah because they didn't care for the poor. That because they had built up riches for themselves. God wiped out two cities entirely because of the way you and I act today. That sounds like a lot, a lot like what James is warning us against. Maybe you and I need to heed this warning of God, the God of the angel armies. Or maybe we might get the Sodom and Gomorrah treatment. Praise Him for His grace and His mercy. It says in verse 5, You have lived on earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Our riches are not meant for us to fatten our hearts with. To live in luxury they are given to us to care for the body of Christ and more. And our example is always Jesus Christ. And no one more generous has ever lived. He gave of Himself. He gave of His life. 
He gave in order that you and I might have a right relationship. He gave everything He had. Talk about generous. Our God is a generous God. And we, as Christ followers, should be as well. Christians should be generous people. So do our lives line up with that? Do, 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 is our, mar, our lives marked with generosity? As a, a people as a whole, I'm not even talking about us individually right now. As Christians as a whole, the church in America, would you say that the, the church in America is generous? Me either. I remember hearing years ago that to solve the world's water problem, that first of all, 50% of the hospital beds in the world are filled with people with waterborne illnesses. And to fix the world's water problems would cost us rev- roughly $7 billion. Everybody on planet Earth could have clean water for about $7 billion. In the year I heard this was probably 2006. That year alone, the church in America spent $21 billion on new construction. We could have, we could have solved the world's water problem three times in just one year. You ask a server who works in a restaurant, somebody that doesn't generally make a whole lot of money, go ask them what the least favorite shift to work is. You know what they'll tell you? Sunday after church. Because those Christians are so cheap, they won't tip well. We should be marked with generosity. Our lives should show it. We, we trust in the Lord with all of our heart. We lean not on our understanding. Even if I give everything I have away today, I know by the promises of God that He's going to take care of me. I'll have food and clothing. It's guaranteed in Matthew chapter 6. So why not be more generous? So the application of this text, I think you kind of get it. But if we were to pose it in a question, this is what we need to ask ourselves. How can we live more simply so that others can simply live? What can we do with what God has given us? And I know the battle because I've fought the battle before. That's my paycheck. I earned that. No. God gave it to you. How how do we open our wallet? How do we open our pocketbook to say, all right, Lord, I want to demonstrate. I want to show the world. I want to live differently than what the world would. I want to fight against those 360 times a day. How can I live more simply? What can I change in my life so that others might be blessed by what you have given me? Do you guys keep a budget? Anybody? One person? Wow, all right. Several of you keep a budget. Do you have a line item in your budget for generosity? Maybe we should. As we, as we set up our budget for every month, we'll say, oh, right, this is extra income, or these are things that God has blessed us with. Or even if it might cost us something, like I might have to give up you know, the Friday night fight, or the latte. Did you guys see that pumpkin spice junk is already out? It was 96 degrees yesterday in my car as I left yesterday afternoon, and I can go get a pumpkin spice latte. <laughs> Paul's here. (laughs) Maybe you give that up. 
What, what could we give up that we might show a greater generosity? There is great joy in being generous. The greatest moments in my life have been when I've been able to give something away, to share with other people, to, to bless other people. If we have less here on earth, maybe we won't be so wanton not to leave it. This world's not our home. But man, our roots are deep here, aren't they? Maybe if we have less, it won't be so bad. We won't be so afraid to leave it. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So let's take a step of faith. That's what last week's message was about. Take ventures of faith. Let's take We love superhero movies, right? That's the only movie that's coming out for the next four years is some sort of superhero movie, right? Marvel and DC is capitalizing on the fact that we love superheroes. Why? Because they step out in faith and they act sacrificially. That's what God is calling us to. That's what God is calling us to because we're wired for self-sacrifice and risk. That, that actually pleases our heart when we walk in that way. But our wallets, and therefore our lives, very rarely line up with that. I know today's word is challenging, and I pray it would sit on our hearts until it causes us to act. And I want to finish where we began and challenge you with verse 17 of chapter 4. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. My prayer that this message would change our lives, that we as a church would be marked as generous people. That we would freely give up everything that we have if it might draw somebody closer to Christ. That we would open our homes. That we would open our lives. That we would open our wallets. I see you only have a shirt and don't have a coat. I've got two coats. Let me give you one of mine. That's the example Jesus gives us. And if you're honest... Like I've had to be honest with myself this week. I know that I'm not content with just food and clothing. I know that I'm not there yet. Boy, I'd love to be there. And I know that there's been things that I should have done when it comes to my money, when it comes to my talent and, and my mouth. I know there's things I should have done that I didn't do. Know that I've sinned against God. And Lord, as you did not cower from a thing that was difficult, the cross, that, you, that we might have life, I pray that we wouldn't cower from a strong message, Lord, about our finances. I pray that we would be honest and take a look at our lives and the way that we spend our money. And Lord, if there is adjustment that need be made, I pray that we would make it so that we might be marked as a generous people that we would freely give and know that we will be provided for by the Word of God. Lord, draw us to a contentment of the simple, that if we have food and clothing, in this we'll be content. 
And Lord, for all the luxury that you have given us, may we say thank you. But may we not hold so tightly to it that we lose sight of you. Teach us your ways. Equip your saints. Guide and direct us until we can meet again. In Jesus' name, amen.